pray with me. Father, this is what we need this morning, a word from you, a word that will speak to where we are in life. And I pray that your spirit will come and take what is preached and apply it to our hearts. And as I pray often and every week and every day, Lord, that this is not about Alex. This is not about me. This is not my church. This is not mine. But it's yours. It belongs to you. I'm just an under-shepherd to the shepherd. And I pray, Spirit, that you will move my pride, my self-focus out of the way and bring all glory to my God and King through what is done here today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I was taken out of context. You have heard many people make that argument, right? When they have called out on things they have said or written. They say, I've been taken out of context. You see with movie stars, professional athletes, politicians, those who are in positions of power, whenever they're called out, I was taken out of context. I didn't, that's not what I meant. For some... That claim is legitimate. For others, it's just an excuse not to own up to what they said or did, or for what they said or written. Have you made that argument? Have you taken someone out of context? What about the Bible? What if the Bible made that claim? What if the Bible came to you and said, you just took me out of context? Would it be legitimate? I think so. This argument can also be made by the gospel. That in our lives, that in the way we live, in the way we think, we all have taken the gospel out of context. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? I mean we, we have a tendency to add stress and hardship to an already hard Christian life by kicking to the curb the things that the gospel really wants to produce in our heart. Because some of the things we want the gospel to do, it ain't going to do. It just ain't going to do. But we run after those things. And when we do that, we take the gospel out of context. So in your life, is the gospel in context? If it's not, no need to worry. John has a word for us this morning from the Lord. To help us put the gospel back in its proper pace. Back in its proper place in our life. He does this by giving us a little test. It's what I call the the GAT. The gospel awareness test. To see where you are this morning. This test would allow us to self-examine our understanding. In a real sense, John wants us to check the pulse of our understanding. To make sure we're breathing properly. The aim of the test is to give you assurance. It's to give you confidence that you are a child of God. So if you have your Bibles, open them to 1 John 
chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. First John chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. And by this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old command that you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of our God. Seeing... And understanding the gospel in its proper context, this is what the gospel awareness test helps us to do. And for John, the first context of the gospel is to know him, to know Jesus. How do we know if we have come to know him? Verse 3 says, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commands. I know what you're thinking. You're saying to to yourself, how is it that John calls me out for taking the gospel out of context when he does the same thing? Are we not saved by grace? Well, are we? Are we saved by grace? Saved by grace through faith. Not a result of works, but a gift of God. John is not taking the gospel out of context. What he's, he's not talking about the means of salvation. But he's talking about what the gospel produces in us when we are saved. It produces us in, in us a desire to live by God's word. A desire to keep his commands. You see, obedience doesn't save you. But it gives evidence that you are saved. To know Jesus. It means you're in a personal relationship that transforms you from the inside out. To keep his commandments is not perfection. No one's perfect. Only Jesus was perfect. But it's an overflow of your heart to strive to the best of your ability to live your life according to God's word. Even though you're weak and even though you fail and sometimes you fail often and a lot. But you can still have that desire to live for God. So John, to he, he drives his point home more by giving us an illustration. Two examples, one negative, one positive. 
In verses 4 and 5, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Have you noticed something about John? Even when we first started in First John, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't dip his words in chocolate so they are nicely received, so he doesn't offend. He's to the point, point blank. He's black and white, no shades of gray. It's either this or it's that. He can't be in between, according to John. You know, it's amazing how, how God can use your kids to reveal a lot of things that's in your own heart. You can catch your child doing something wrong. You catch them, and, and, they have, and then when they see you looking at them, that face of conviction, they have that face of conviction. If you're a parent, your kid has that look when you catch them doing something wrong, the face of conviction, because they know what they just did was wrong. So you talk to the kid. You set them down. You explain to them what you did was wrong, why it's wrong. And then they give you that nod that they understand. Do you understand? I understand. And then minutes later, they're doing the same thing. <laughs> and then you say, oh, I'm going to pull my hair out because you wonder, am I making progress with this kid? Lord, this child is so inconsistent. And so are you. And so am I. Inconsistent. All of us are. All Christians are inconsistent in their life. And here in this text, John is calling out those who are inconsistent with no conviction. Who care very little about making progress in their Christian journey. This is the person who says, I know him, but does not keep his commands. Inconsistent with no conviction. If this is you, then you are a liar and the truth is not in you. Not my words. Don't get mad with me. I'm just a messenger. It's God's word. You see, to keep his commandments, it implies more than just obedience. More than just a call to obey and a response to obey. It also implies you have value for his commandments. You actually take a possession of them. They become part of you, part of your life. Do you throw away things that you truly value? Look at your life. Do you take out to the trash can things that you truly value? Do you? If you truly value something, you keep it. You treasure it. You hold on to it. You see, this means when it comes to God's commands, they have to have a priority in your life. They just can't be something you have in passing. They have to be part of you. They should be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. When you lie down and when you rise, you shall talk about them. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and it shall be frontless between your eyes. You shall allow his word to correct you. You shall read it. You shall memorize them. You shall allow them to rebuke you, to challenge you, to encourage you. The psalmist says, I have stored your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. This is what it means for the truth to be in you. 
That it has, it has a power over you. You value it. And when it's in you this way, it changes you. It gives you a desire to better live for God. The person who strives to keep God's commands, he doesn't, he doesn't see them as a list of do's or don'ts. He doesn't see God's word as a, as a list of you can't do this, you can't do that. He sees God's commands as God's word to him. Whoever keeps his word. You see the John's play here? Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. The word has become the standard by which you base your whole existence, your life, your values, your politics, your job, your family, your resources, your stuff, your time, your relationships should all be shaped by God's word. Is it? Is that true in my life? Is it true in your life? This is the measuring stick by which we measure our life. The word of God, it has to be a mighty wave that overtakes your life. It's like a person standing in the rain, face up, hands out. The rain's all over their body. And if you are a believer, God's word should be raining all over your life. And you should enjoy it. You should just stand like this. Father, let it rain. Let your word reign all over my being, all over my circumstances, all over who I am. Is that you? Is that me? Do I really want his word to reign all over my life? His word is wisdom. His word is guidance. His word is a counselor. His word is his fatherly instruction to you. It is a graceful garland on your head, a pendant on your neck. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you? Do I? The psalmist says again, I will run after your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I will run after your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Is your heart being enlarged more toward God and his word? And when it is, you will run after them both. You will. You can't help but to. One Christian said that, one Christian said, 1 John is the most convicting book in the Bible. And if you truly know Jesus, then your inconsistency convicts you. It doesn't condemn you, but it does convict you when you're inconsistent. Do you know why the child has a face of conviction when the parent catches them doing something wrong? You know why that is? Because the child wants to please the parent. Because the child loves the parent in return. That's why. You want to please what you love. John says, whoever keeps his commandments, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is truly perfected. What does that mean? It means you are growing in your love for God. Not just God's love for you, but you actually love him in return. And it is seen in your desire to please him. Not to earn his favor, not to earn his attention, but you really want to live a life that is pleasing to your father because you love him in return because he first loved you. 
Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Whoever doesn't love me will not keep my word. We ain't talking about perfection. We're talking about a simple desire to live a life pleasing to God. Do we have it? And that's straight from the horse's mouth. Do you really love him? Do I really love him? When we look over our life, examine our life, the things we do, the things we value, the things that shape us, the things that we entertain, is there really a love for God there? I've said this before, and this is true of my life as well, that we love Jesus far less than we profess, and we love this world far more than we ever admit. We do. And that's the truth if we look at our life. So now, the gospel awareness test that shows us that to know God means you keep his word. You can keep his word because you want to please him. You want to please him because you love him. Because you want to love him in return. That is the gospel in context. It produces a greater love for God in us. In return, we actually want to pursue a relationship with God. A healthy relationship. This is not one-sided, but it's two-sided. That we love God in return. We, we, we pursue God in relationship. We take ownership of our relationship with him. And the reality is that Jesus isn't going to come down and say, Alex, you need to spend time with me. You need to pray to me. He's not going to come down and do that. He's already told me I need to do that in his word. Am I listening to it? Am I listening to it? So the test is not over. John goes further. So he moves to the next context, and that is knowing him. That is being in him. The context of being in him. How do we know if we are in him? By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Who is this referring to? It's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. We are to live in the same way that Jesus lived. He is our example, our model. We compare our life to his life. He is our measuring stick. We are to mirror him in everything. This means that no other person and no other thing should be your measuring stick. You shouldn't compare yourself to your neighbor, your coworker other family members. We shouldn't compare ourselves to other churches for what they're doing. My problem, I compare myself to other church planners. I feel like they're better than me because I don't look like them. And something's wrong. Jesus is our mirror. Jesus is our example. And you model your life after him and no one else. We should be becoming more like Jesus in everything. We should be looking like Jesus in every area of our life. 1 John 1 5 says that God is light. God is light. And we know, if you read through the Gospel of John, that John says that Jesus is the light that came into the world to enlighten all men. He is the light of men. He says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He has come into this world as a light, and that whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness. This is our Savior. He came to the world to save the world. 
He said, I did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom to many. Jesus truly served other people. He washed the disciples' dirty feet. Jesus, God, washed the disciples' dirty feet. He spent time with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, the unlovable, the outcast. He was merciful. He was compassionate. And he called out those who needed to be humble. Jesus said, he always does the things that are what? Pleasing to the Father. Jesus submitted himself to the will of God, even to the point of death on the cross. You see, the walk of Jesus is the way of the cross. Self-sacrifice, self-denial, and love. And if we abide in him, then we too will walk by way of the cross, self-sacrifice, self-denial, and love. One pastor said, to, to, to walk as Jesus walked is not by rules, but by an example. It is to follow him, to be his disciple. And such a discipleship is personal, active, and costly. We like those other two, but we don't like the third one now. Costly. A few months ago, Waikita and I were introduced to a um, contractor um, by one of her friends. And he's a nice guy. We met with him on a couple occasions because we wanted to get some things done around the house. So he would come over and talk to us and give us advice. Uh, we asked him about different products, and he'd give us, I guess, his expert advice. advice. You know, but he always had a favorite saying that he would tell us, and we'd start talking about stuff. He would always say, Miss Waikita, Pretty costs. Pretty costs. It costs money to make your kitchen look like the ones in the TV or in the magazine. And to look like Jesus, keep in mind, pretty costs. Because he's pretty. And if you're going to look like him, it's going to cost. What is it going to cost you? It's going to cost you your affection. It's going to cost you your loyalties. It's going to cost you your allegiances. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you your resources. All those things go to Jesus. That's what it's going to cost you. Do you feel it? If you don't feel it, then something's wrong. What what is it costing you to look like Jesus? Because you can't look like Jesus and look like Satan too. One is going to be growing and the other is going to be dying. Which one is it? Remember, what Jesus says, he is the light of the world. He is the light of the world. In John 12, 36, he says, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And in John 9, he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now check this out here. In Matthew 5, in the the Beatitudes, this, this is what he says. You are. The light of the world. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people, people do not light a lamp and put it on a basket. But on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Wow! Do you understand what should be happening in your life? As the people of God reflect the light of Christ in their lives, they actually become the light of the world. 
He said, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He's not in the world right now. We're in the world. And in return, we are the light that people should see. We are the light of the world. And when they see us, they should see Jesus in us. In every area of our life. Is that true in your life? Are you the light in your neighborhood? Are you the light on your job? Are you a light in your family? Are you the city on the hill? And when people see you, they see Jesus. What are you? Are you a light to your enemies? You see, the church is the light of this world. We are. It's in his word. And what does that mean? What does that mean? It means the government is not the light. Republicans are not the light. Democrats is not the light. Liberals are not the light. Conservatives are not the light. The Tea Party is not the light. The Black Panther Party is not the light. The Old South is not the light. The NAACP is not the light. There's only one light in this world, and it's us. Do you believe that? And so that means none of those things should be shaping who you are. You should be shaping them. Because you are the light. We are the game changers. We are the bride of Christ. And are we ready to change things? Am I ready? It's the church. The people of God. Think like that and live like that. Our light, we should use it as a weapon of good and not evil. A weapon to reconcile and unite. Not a weapon to surrogate, surrogate and divide. We need to get on board and realize who team are we on? Whose agenda are we pushing? We push the gospel agenda. That's who we push. That's what we do. Is that true of your life? Is it true of my life? Where are you? Where are you? A friend of mine named Michael Jones, he gave a wonderful charge for me for my ordination service back in November 2008. He gave me three charges that I should carry with me throughout my ministry. And my friend, Miss Mandy Goodson, made this for me, so I won't ever forget him. And I hang in my office. And the first charge, he says, I need to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. That's what the glasses represent. And he said, the second charge is, don't make room for Jesus and my wife in the suitcase. Don't just, don't just make room for them. They have to have better priority than that. And the third charge was to, be the moon. Be the moon. If you know anything about the moon, you know the moon does not have a light of its own. It reflects the light of the sun. And as a believer, we don't have a light of our own. We reflect the light of Christ in our life. Be the moon in any and everything you do throughout your life. Reflect his light wherever you go. And whatever you do, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. So that when people see your life, they don't give glory to you, they give glory to your Father in heaven. That's what they do. That's what they do. This now leads us to the final context of the gospel. We talked about the context of knowing him, the context of being in him, and now the final context. Look at verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new command, 
But an old command that you heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. At the same time, in this new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that's Jesus, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. This old commandment. This is John again, his play on words. You know, commandments, God's word. Same thing as here, command, God's word. He's saying the old commandment is the word that you heard from the beginning. So what is it? What is it? What is this old commandment? It's love. Love. How often we forget about that little four-letter word in our Christian journey. Love. Love is the final context of the gospel. It is the old commandment that existed in the Old Testament, even before Jesus, Jesus came. God, the people of God were called to love. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Leviticus 19, 18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? It's everybody, including your enemies. All of God's word and law and commandments depend on those two things. That's what Jesus, that's what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. When the, when the lawyer came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandments in the law? Jesus said, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. And Paul, in Romans 13, says, Owe no one anything except to love for the one who loves fulfills the law. For the commandments, you should not commit murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no, love does no wrong to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's the commandment. That's God's word. Is that true in our life? He also says this commandment is also new. How is it new? In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, he says, a new command I give you, that is to love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. How did Jesus love others? He loved them with a sacrificial love. That's how he loved them. Pastor Tim Keller says that Christ's love was a love demonstrated to his enemies. To turn enemies into friends. And to restore them to the glory of their humanity. You see that? Christ's love turned his enemies into his friends. Sacrificial love. John says that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This means the light of Jesus is progressively advancing in the world and the darkness is progressively passing away. And if we are the moon that reflects that light of Jesus, then the reflection shines brightest when we truly love people. That's when it shines its brightest. Not when we think we got everything right. Not when we think all our theology is right or we're doing all this right. But when we are actually loving people well, the light shines brightest. How are you doing? 
Do you use your light to love others or to tear them down? Verse 9 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here's the gospel in context. It produces love for God and a love for your neighbor. That's the gospel. If that ain't happening to you, then you ain't growing. You've got to be loving people better. Loving your enemies better. Loving those that you don't like better. That's what we should pray for. Love our, loving our neighbor is proof that we love God. Love here and love here has to be happening at the same time. Where there is lack of love, there is hate. Who are the people in your life that you just don't like? We all have them. Who are the people in your life that you're jealous of? We have those too. Is it a parent? Is it a classmate? Is it a sibling? Is it an ex-boyfriend, an ex-girlfriend? Who is it? Is it a particular group of people? To be in the light is to love. And if you don't, you're walking in darkness. You see, what John he communicates to us here is that, that, that love and hate, it affects you. It affects you. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there's no cause for stumbling. Because he himself is being changed by the light. That's why he doesn't stumble. He sees clearly. And particularly, you should be growing and seeing people clearly. In order not to sin against them. In order to love them despite their flaws. A. Palmer says, The light in man is darkness until it is worn by love. Now, I know it ain't easy to love people. And I'm not sitting here saying it is. It's hard. But if I'm a believer, if I'm a believer and I claim to know Jesus, then, then my dislike, my hatred, and my prejudice towards other people should be changing because of what the gospel is doing in my heart. You know what else it means? It means I don't see people based on cultural stereotypes or false assumptions. I see them in light of God's word. What is shaping the way you see people? What has shaped the way you see people? Has, was it, has it been history? We all know history is about one-sided. You don't have to be a historian to know that. Is it cultural stereotypes? Is it false assumptions? Is it the media? What's shaping the way you see other people? Because you're being shaped by something. Is it being changed? Is it being challenged by the word of God? It has to. You have to be growing in that. Because on the other side of the track is that if you have unrepentant hatred and prejudice in your heart, it reveals that you're still in the darkness. You're walking blindly. This means our view of other people are not being shaped by God's word. You are allowing stereotypes, media, movies, history, false assumptions, and your own prejudice to shape the way you see other people. And God has called his people to be better than that. Hatred, prejudice, distorts your perspective of others. Not only that, if you don't ever deal with it, you continue to fall deeper down the hole. Deeper down the rabbit hole. I used to hate my dad 
Why? Because he really wasn't there for me. It wasn't until I became a believer that I was able to see him clearly. What do I mean by that? I realized I was angry with my dad because he wasn't there. He didn't come to me in my football games. He wasn't involved as I wanted him to be involved. Then when I became a believer, God showed me him. I saw him. What did I see? He never had a dad either. He never had anyone come to his games either. He never had anyone tell him he was proud of him either. And so what I learned is that me and my dad are in the same boat. We're learning how to be men together. And so I was able to forgive him for that. That's what I mean by seeing people clearly, seeing people differently. That you're able to forgive those who have hurt you. And understand that. One Christian says, We do not first misjudge people and hate them as a result. Our view of them is already soured by our hatred of them. You understand what he's saying there? We don't first misjudge people and then hate them as a result. Our view of them is already soured by hatred and prejudice. It's already soured by, soured by that. It is love which sees straight, thinks clearly. It is love that makes us balance in our outlook, judgment, and conduct toward other people. If you really don't love others and strive to love others, you're going to continue in prejudice and hatred and distrust, disliking them with no understanding. You're going to be unbalanced in your view of other people. All these things that I've said this morning, that's the gospel in context. Putting it back to where God wants it to be. That's love for God. That's knowing God and living for Him. That's love for Him. And love for our neighbor that heals our dislike and hatred and prejudice of them. That Those things should be happening in your heart, in my heart. If it's not, we need to go do business with God when we're done here and repent. <coughs> Not saying this, I, I preach these things to you because your sins are forgiven. Not to beat you up, not to make you live in guilt, but because you are forgiven in Christ's sake. Because you do know him who is from the beginning. I preach these things to you because you have overcome the evil one. Because you know the Father. I preach these things to you because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. I preach these things to myself and to you. Because I love each and every one of you. And I will want you to continue to walk well. Fight well. And the gospel to have its proper context in your life. And it's loving God and loving your neighbor. Everything that you do. Bible studies. Reading. Church life. Should be pushing you toward those two things. If it's not, then you need to ask yourself some questions. Let us pray. I know, Father, that love for God and love for others, it sounds so simple, so easy, but it's not easy. It's not easy. Because sin still remains in us. That, does it, but that's what, that prevents it from being easy to really love you and to love others. And so we pray that, that your spirit, Father, can't forget about him, for he lives in us if we are a believer. And I pray to you, Spirit, 
that you would bring the gospel to its proper context in our life, that you would give us the, the, the power and the ability to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, that you would be working in us mightily, that we will be growing more and more into the light and the darkness in us will be passing away progressively, Lord. And that when people see us, they see Jesus. And now our light will shine. It will be the city on the hill. And then when people see us, they will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. I pray for all this in your Son's name. Amen.